This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise. I'm talking to Greg LeHoulier. He is a tomato guru. He thinks the time of coronavirus, when people are home and wary of grocery shopping, is the perfect time to become a gardener. He and a gardener in Australia have spent 15 years working with people from around the world to develop 123 varieties of dwarf tomatoes, which even city dwellers with just a pot of soil can raise. He's also perfected the art of growing vegetables in bales of straw and will soon have books on both of those initiatives. His first book, Epic Tomatoes, he called writing it an act of courage, is not just a practical guide to growing tomatoes, but a personal life history of his favorite varieties. A man that is called by Dennis Sullivan, instead of Johnny <laughs> Appleseed, Johnny Tomato Seed. It's Craig LaHoulier. <laughs> and our readers know from Dennis's column this month that... Um, this is a man who knows tomatoes inside out. And I'm just so thrilled to be able to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Melissa. It's, um, you know, Epic Tomatoes came out about five years ago, and it has uh, made my life so interesting. Uh, the nice people that I've met, the fellow gardeners I've met, uh, the ability to be truly retired and to uh, be rid of my long career in pharmaceutical chemistry. And, uh, you know, these days, it's a good time to be a gardener um, because with what's going on in the world, people gaining the skills to grow their own food has never been more important. I think you're right, both because a lot of people have time on their hands now that they're home, but also because just to have the sense of something you grew yourself and not having to risk that trip to the grocery store would be a good thing. Oh, yeah. But the book itself, I'd just like to talk about that first. It is just an explosion of color, and it's put together in such a way that even if you are never planning on gardening... (laughs) It's just amazing to look at. Who did the photography for this? Well, I really do. Thank you so much, first of all, for your kind words. Um, So it's my first book, and you have to understand the experience of submitting a Word document to a company and knowing that they have had photographers at your house and they have an art department. And then getting that back was just a very humbling experience to see how well story publishing treated the information and treated me. So um, there were actually two main photographers for the book, and one of them was my daughter's friend, Stephen, who she met when she was on the Peace Corps in Madagascar, and this was his first uh, professional piece of work. And then the second year, to do some retakes and some fill-ins, Kip Garrett, another great photographer, was used. And then the art department at Story came up with the concept and the way to make the information uh, beautiful. So I feel like um, I'm the luckiest guy in the world <laughs> to, have been treated, to have been treated so kindly by story publishing. Yeah, well, it is truly beautiful. And like one of the features that I love is interspersed with your narrative on various topics are these 
portraits. They're actual portraits of tomatoes. <laughs> There's a, you know, a special layout to those pages, all black with a pop uh, border. And then there's a picture of this particular kind of tomato, and I'll just read one called Sun Gold, that says, the first time most people pop a Sun Gold cherry tomato into their mouth and crunch down, the look on their faces is priceless. And then it goes on to describe the way I think most of us think of maybe a wine connoisseur <laughs> describing <laughs> what they're tasting. It's uh, Sun Gold is unique in the range of flavors it exhibits. Picked pale orange, there's a fullness and complexity with a nice snappy bite. At medium orange, sweetness and tartness play out in a delicious dance of intensity. And it goes on like this. I mean, you, you wrote those descriptions, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, so my wife accuses me, and I'll put my hand up and say I'm guilty of being not so much a food snob. And I've, I've tested myself. I'm not one of those super tasters, but I've always liked food. I'm a chemist, and I like to cook. And when it, whether it's coffee, and I'm, I'm a home coffee roaster, whether it's dark chocolate, whether it's wine, whether it's beer, whether it's tomatoes, I go beyond just saying this is some food that I'm eating I, or a drink that I'm drinking. I search for the adjectives. Uh, I search for how it makes me feel. I search for the adjective, adjectives that help me describe it. And I do develop really distinct opinions and, on everything I eat. And, you know, I've grown maybe three or four, I don't know, maybe it's 5,000 different tomatoes now over the 40 years of my gardening. And I can still remember the look, the plant habit, the size, the flavor of every single one. So I've been, I've been also cursed or blessed with a somewhat photographic memory that I'm sure someday will depart, but so far so good. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's wonderful. So one of the things that you write about early on in your book is you say the things that are most important to you um, in growing tomatoes, and you list uniqueness, variety, historical relevance, and flavor. And I wonder if you could just kind of unpack that a little for our listeners. Yeah. What is it about those qualities? that? Yeah, so I, I think... First of all, um, my entryway into this type of gardening was certainly discovery of the Seed Savers Exchange in the mid-80s, because if they had not come about, and that was an, that's an, a great vital organization that is absolutely vital to this day, that was formed in 1975, um, as a brainstorm from Kent and Diane Wheely to put in place processes to keep our genetic heritage alive so that things don't go extinct. So when I first started gardening in 1981, I was just this is I was just new to gardening. It's great we can grow our own stuff, but then I get bored with the ordinary and the typical. And so my tomatoes were red, and my peppers were green, and joining the Seed Savers Exchange helped me go beyond that. So now gardeners today have uh, we can grow produce with stories, with colors, with diversity, with diverse flavors. So when I look at tomatoes, I think in this crop in this fruit you know so it's botanically a fruit and it's culinarily used typically as a vegetable are many many different aspects you can think of facets of a gemstone where you can use them as a way to grow and develop and entice gardeners because many of these varieties have incredibly fascinating stories so when i look at my garden i don't see plants i see the letters and the faces in some cases of the people that sent me the seeds I see different types of colors that can spark your creativity 
if you like to get into the kitchen and play. And, you know, yeah, you can use red tomatoes and it tastes good, but what if you have eight different colors? What, how does that fire off your creative juices? And then the aspect of preserving our genetic heritage for the future. Uh, we have two daughters, one in Durham, one in Seattle, and uh, that Sarah in Seattle has two little boys, our grandchildren. Um, if I love growing Cherokee purple, I would like my daughter to grow Cherokee purple, and I would like Aiden and Aaron, her sons, to, to grow Cherokee purple and their kids. So we get to play a part in this wonderful sequence of growing and saving seeds and passing things on and making sure that we can keep them growing for the future. So really, all of those aspects, culinary, visual, um, the physical aspect of gardening, um, the social and community aspect of bringing people into your gardens and telling stories and that being a way to grow gardeners makes it the perfect hobby, which has become a profession for me. And if I were to kind of crystallize or distill my, my simple goal into one sentence, is it is to grow gardeners around the world, to help demystify it, to help people to succeed. Because, you know, lots of people are going to dabble in gardening right now. What will happen is if they fail is they may become non-gardeners. So what is it that I can do that can help people succeed so that they garden forever? And that, that's kind of a very long, convoluted answer to your simple No, that's a great answer. And there's so many directions I want to go from that answer. And I sure. don't want to forget the idea of how you can help people succeed. But first, because you mentioned this kind of personal aspect, um, I just loved one part of your book where you have photographed the letters, the handwritten letters, and you mentioned the Cherokee purple. And I'm wondering if this is where you decided, you, you came up with that name, as I understand it. Yes. And this letter is from yeah. J.D. Green in mm -hmm. Tennessee, and he or she writes, I talked with a lady that gave me the purple tomato seed. She got them from her neighbor several years ago. The only thing they know about them is the tomato has been in their family for about 100 years, and they were gotten from the Cherokee Indians. I'm sorry I can't tell you anything more. <laughs> it's just such a personal connection to a plant yeah. um, in a family for a century. And yeah. with this heritage, is that how you came up with that name, uh, Cherokee um, Purple? Yes. And so that, that perhaps is the most special tomato in my collection because in a way it was um, the fact that Mr. Green, Jay, and his name is John D. Green, uh, as far as I know, he still lives in Sevierville, Tennessee. And in a subsequent phone call with him, I found out that the woman who gave him the seeds is named Jean Greenlee, and she lives in Rutledge, Tennessee. And it was her grandfather that got the seeds from the Cherokee Indians. So now there's a few things to that statement I said. Number one is, and you'll, you'll recognize this, this, I think, from thinking genealogy and thinking about discussions you've had with your grandparents who, who may not be around anymore. We never ask all of the questions we should ask to get the full story. So heirloom gardening is full of incomplete stories that all start somewhere. But many of us wish we could have gone back and asked more. But what's interesting about the Cherokee Purple story, it exhibits so many aspects of this. He chose me. Um, he, he, did, he heard about me through seed swaps in gardening magazines such as Organic Gardening and uh, Mother Earth News. And he decided I was someone who could be a caretaker for this tomato with him. And I grew it and I found it unique looking. 
and I sent it to Jeff McCormick, who ran Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. And he, even though when he called me, he said, this tomato is so ugly, it looks like a leg bruise. I don't think it will ever become popular, but it tastes pretty good. And he sold it in his catalog in 1993 with this strong caveat, only for the very adventurous gardener. And here it is. It, I, could, I can go to any farmer's market in the country and find that tomato. Now, think of the fragility of this. If, if Jeff didn't sell it in his catalog, if I didn't send it to Jeff, if Mr. Green didn't send it to me, if uh, uh, Ms. Greenlee didn't share it with, with Mr. Green, we wouldn't have it. And, and you can almost take this story and replicate it amongst all of the heirlooms to exhibit the fragility of the little links in the chain that bring it to us today. Now, I'm so glad you went to the back of the book and found the letters because of all of the podcasts and interviews I've done, you may be only the first or the second that's actually asked about that. And uh, that's my favorite part of the book, perhaps, because I was walking my dog one day with my wife, our dogs, and I said, how can I, you know, this is going to be a tomato book. What are the little things that I can do to make it stand out and be a little bit special? And I thought of the box of letters of every gardener who's ever sent me seed that I still own. And I thought, if I send story, some of the letters from my favorite varieties, maybe let replicate them and put them in the back of the book, because that will make it more than a gardening book. That will make it, in a way, a history book and a cultural book. And so um, I, if people make it all the way to the end and see those letters, I hope that is just one more gateway experience for them to decide, I want to see what this feels like. I want to grow some heirlooms. I want to tell some stories to my family. So thank you so, so much for uh, <laughs> well, nothing <laughs> to thank. That. that was all you. You have <laughs> in your whole writing style a very personal approach to what you're doing. I think so many of us are used to getting our tomatoes and the rest of our food <laughs> from a supermarket where they're all yep. hybrids and they mm-hmm. all look round and perfect and taste a little like cardboard and you have just made it instead like a personal relationship to your food it is you know it and what's interesting about that so i had never written a book before i blogged a little bit and so the anxiety that a first-time author feels because you're 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 writing and you know i was a chemist so i had to write uh i wrote up experiments i had to write my thesis that's technical writing so when, when, when confronted with this challenge, you know, when Story Publishing asked me, Carlene, my editor, said, you know, we need a book on tomatoes. Would you like to write one? I thought, okay, fine, fun. Fine. Somebody finally asked me, and I was excited. But then I thought, okay, so I'm going to – I'm not a professional writer. I'm not a trained writer. Um, all I can do is write the book as if I'm taking people through my garden and make it a personal experience and see how that works. So – Here's the book. It's out there. And then the next uh, bubble of anxiety that surfaces is, oh, my God, people are going to be able to read this and review it. And they're going to go on Amazon and they're going to go on, you know, what is it, a book read or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be out there. And I, I could get – so I think the other thing a first-time author develops is a sense of courage and an ability to realize that you could put – in. you know, when I think of politicians, musicians, artists, anyone – we, we put themselves out there uh, to um, be critiqued, and nothing is going to appeal to everyone. So um, I am actually, I have to admit, I'm pleased with how Epic Tomatoes has been received, but that was maybe the most sleepless nights, was when Story said, it's out there. 
It's going to start appearing on websites. People are going to now be able to review it. I'm like, oh, this is going to be the challenging part of all this. It's fine. Um, signing books, when I go to do talks and people come up and ask me to sign them, is one of the most wonderful parts of it because you get to meet gardeners one-on-one -on -one and share stories with them. And it personalizes the whole experience. So, you know, if I were to rank the whole book writing experience from the day I started writing until how I feel now, it's like an A plus 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 one of my favorite life-defining um, joy-inducing moments of my life wow <laughs> that's great because it does take courage once your words and thoughts are out there they kind of have their own life and you don't know how people are going to interpret them or what they're going to do with them and that's it, it is an act of courage so to get back to an original point you were making, and I went off on the path because I loved the letters at the end, you were saying one of your goals, and there's a part in your book where you actually say something like, hey, really, I'd like to put myself out of business. <laughs> you know, that, uh, yeah. My goal, let's see, my goal as a supplier of seedlings has always been to teach our customers so well that we will eventually put ourselves out of business. Yeah. And yeah, that's a wonderful thing to read because your book to me seems to be the antithesis of corporate America. <laughs> you know, the kind of farming that we've all gotten used to rather than the personal uh, do-it-yourself. But if you could, your original point when you were talking about what attracted this you to this to begin with was you'd like to help people succeed, especially now when there are a lot of people trying this for the first time. What, and I know you can't boil down a lifetime or an entire book into a few minutes, but like, what are the key points that new gardeners should listen to? Yeah. So, um, the first few things that come to mind are, are just having the courage to do it. So, um, First of all, you need to want to do it. You need to think, I want to grow something myself. I want to taste something delicious. I want to go beyond the grocery store. Um, and then you look in your yard and you realize there are some places out there where the sun is shining. Um, and if you have places where the sun shines, you don't need the perfect ground. You can put a container. You can put a straw bale. You can build a raised bed. You can dig up the soil. So there's that. Um, then there's this, the courage to dig in and the realization that particularly today with the internet, there is so much help that's just a click away or a book away. And every question has been answered in many different ways multiple times. Um, the other thing I would tell a new gardener is that if you can learn to become obsessed with the journey and realizing that you're going to spend parts of every day out where your soundtrack will be the bird songs and you'll hear the thunder from in the distance and the sun will be shining all kinds of different ways and you'll be uh, working off the calories, be, uh, all that Tillamook or whatever ice cream you ate the night before, you know, you can just dig it out. <laughs> dig, dig it in the um, you'll get healthy. You'll get healthy breathing the air. You'll get to maybe to meet neighbors. Um, but don't get focused on when I start this garden, I'm going to need 25 pounds of fruit off every tomato plant because I'm going to can 40 quarts of tomatoes. You say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to grow my plants and I'm going to learn things and I'm going to make mistakes, but I am going to observe what's happening and maybe react to some of those uh, disease issues or critter issues or overwatering or underfeeding. And sometimes I'll remedy things and we'll be fine, and sometimes I won't. But at the end of the year, you will have what you have. 
you may have 10 pounds of fruit because you may have 15 pounds. The deer may have come along and eat, eaten all your favorite varieties because gardening is a pursuit with a multitude of variables that we can't control. And the, just the daily weather, the nighttime temperatures, the humidity, the different diseases that are in the area this particular year, the different insects that blow in. Um, and so we try to control what we can. We try to do the right things first. It's kind of build quality in from the front because it's easier to keep things growing well than it is to try to fix things later. But at the end of the year, you, you have what you have and it may bring smiles and it may bring some tears and frustration. But then instead of saying, okay, now I'm gonna take October, November, December, January off, that's when you grab a pen and paper and you think about all of the things you loved about it in your journal and all the things that went wrong and maybe start thinking about ideas for next year. And so uh, the other thing I would tell gardeners is you're embarking on something that is a 365, 52-week, 12-month-a-year hobby that you can do something with every single day, whether it's imagining, dreaming, troubleshooting, communicating with other gardeners, saving and trading seed, planting those seeds, um, so it's all of those different things. And, and what I've started trying to do, because um, the COVID-19 virus has canceled, I had, I had a pretty interesting year planned where I was going to be in Albuquerque and in Nantucket and up in Michigan and Speaking in Arkansas. Speaking to different gardening groups and yeah, organizations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I do about maybe 15 or 20 talks a year, and they're all so much fun. Um, so this year I managed to get in only uh, a talk in Oregon and a talk in Connecticut before the virus hit. But I thought, well, you know, I blog, but a lot of people don't have the patience to read blogs or, you know, we're, we're kind of a split second attention span society right now. So if something's not new every day, sometimes we lose interest. So I've started thinking, you know, I'm pretty brave. I've got my, my phone, I've got a pretty good signal here. I've got a big, I, you know, I, I've got a new house with a new garden. I'm going to be learning things and making mistakes and having successes. So every Friday now at three o'clock, I just turn on my phone and go live on Instagram and take 45 minutes and I show people some things I'm doing. And then I sit for the last 20 or 30 minutes and I take every question people throw at me. And then uh, about 3.45, we say, that's a wrap. It was fun. And uh, it sits on Instagram for 24 hours. So you could actually, um, it starts at three. So you could go see it. Um, oh, that's great. So how, how do people yeah. get to that? What What's the... Um... Yeah. So my Instagram name is at NC Tomato Man, all one word, N-C-T-O-M-A-T-O-M-A-N. And if you look at my profile, there, my picture at the upper left um, is kind of pulsing a little bit. That means there's uh, an Instagram live video that's up for a few more hours. And if you click that, you can not only see me um, taking people through my 45-minute session that I do on Friday, but you can see also all of the little comments and questions that are streaming up and people... Uh, you know, asking things and then adding other information in. So I'm doing this weekly because it's a very easy way for me to interact with other gardeners. And again, do some more of that teaching. So yesterday I demonstrated, this is how I plant my tomato seedlings and straw bales. Next week, we're going to be able to take a look at that. So, uh, I, so this is warts and all. I mean, I could have some of those plants going down to disease, but I'll be able to show it, what it looks like. And people can share their experiences with me. Um, so blog, newsletter, um, my third book is in progress and that will be about our dwarf tomato breeding project. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to embark on that is to help gardeners who 
are space challenged to be able to grow tomatoes that they can enjoy, but they want to use a five-gallon container or a three or four-foot cage or stake, and they don't have the, the plants growing everywhere. So, you know, I'm 64, um, two books out, one book on the way at some point, and uh, I'm just kind of taking it one step at a time going forward because I feel like I'm supposed to be doing this. I just don't need to know exactly what I need to be doing next. I'm, I'm comfortable with ambiguity, kind of following my nose, talking to really nice people like you, um, sharing my story with anybody who's going to listen to this, and, and really being there to answer questions. So the end of every day is usually me with my laptop for an hour answering all of the email questions that come in that day because I don't want an email to sit more than 24 hours before I get back to it. So i um, just trying to help people enjoy this wonderful hobby. Oh, that's great. A couple of things struck me as you were speaking. One is, it's hard for me to imagine your life profession was a chemist. You seem more like a philosopher. The things you were saying are kind of metaphors for living, you know, that you learn from mistakes and you laugh and you cry, but you go on. And then also just the intersection between kind of the old-fashioned values of growing things yourself intersecting with this very modern technology so that you continue to reach people, teach people, answer their questions. Yeah. It's That's just wonderful. But a couple of topics that you skipped over there that I had um, hoped we were running really short on time now. But um, I just, if you could talk a little more about the two things you just mentioned. One, the Dwarf Tomato Project, which right. I know is a long time in the works, and you worked with a woman yeah. in Australia on that yeah. and the yes. other the growing out of a hay bale so if you could just yeah. kind of touch on those two topics before sure. we're out of our time sure and, and i just also want to thank you for acknowledging i am actually a right brain left brain gardener so i delight in the aesthetics the stories the colors the flavors but you wouldn't believe the data that i capture so my garden my yard is my laboratory i treat it like a scientist i treat gardening like it's a science but i delight in the aesthetic values of it so i don't know if that makes me insane crazy bizarre i don't care wonderful what is what it is <laughs> uh, so dwarf tomato breeding project um, it was conceived 15 years ago with my friend Petrina in Australia because of the frustration in having to answer the question my seedling customers asked, what can I grow in a container, what stays short, it, but it tastes great and it's interesting looking. There were very few answers to that question at the time, so we decided, let's make some. And so we're using the old-fashioned, back to the history again, mm -hmm. like Gregor Mendel in his peas, where instead of crossing peas to see what happens, we're crossing tomato varieties to see what happens. And we've uh, accumulated a loose collection of maybe six or 700 people all over the world to help us out. So this, um, the book that comes out on this, I'm going to call crowd breeding because it, it's a word that doesn't exist yet, but it's exactly what we've done. We've harnessed the ingenuity and the efforts of a crowd of people all over the world to breed new tomatoes. And we now have 123 varieties. Uh, one company in Oregon, my friend Mike Dunton owns Victory Seed Company, and he is the company that is striving to carry all of our releases. So he's got them all. And we've, we're still working on it, even though it's 15 years since its inception, uh, and we'll have more interesting things coming out. Uh, straw bale gardening, which is the topic of my second book, um, is just really the concept of turning a bale of straw into the equivalent of two 20-gallon perfect containers filled with high-quality potting mix by treating the bale in such a way with nitrogen treatment and water and a balanced plant food 
that you're breaking down and causing the center to compost, which becomes a perfect environment for the roots of your plant. So uh, it takes about two weeks. And I actually did a blog for um, Gardener Supply on the technique. And if people go to my LinkedIn profile and click the link tree, they get into all kinds of helpful um, helpful uh, links, such as the frequently asked questions link from my website. Uh, there's a donate button if anybody wants to throw anything my way to help with all of the crazy stuff I'm doing. There's the dwarf project and things. But two weeks after you buy a bale, you can plant in it and you can either put uh, potting mix on it and plant seeds directly on top, or you can just separate little crevices and slip your seedlings in. Um, last year, I was growing two indeterminate tall-growing tomato plants per straw bale, and I was averaging 20 to 25 pounds of tomatoes per plant. So it works fantastically well. It elevates the plants up so that if you get a sorbet picking green beans and you want to put green beans in your straw bale, you can just pull up a chair and pick them. When, when it's the <laughs> so I always look for, you know, I'm getting old, things are getting creaky. So I always look for ways to kind of help people with the uh, parts of gardening that maybe aren't quite as much fun as the others. Oh, that's <laughs> remarkable. Well, we're almost out of time. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, just that um, I always appreciate the opportunity to share um, the things that I'm learning and the things that I've done. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that I'm any more important or rele relevant than anybody else in the world. It's just we've all got different stories to tell. And I think the more we share with each other, the smaller the world becomes because we realize that um, there are many, many places where we're all in this together. So gardening is one way to eat healthy, do something fun, help preserve seeds for the future. And, um, it's not scary. It's just dig in, get your hands dirty, get sweaty, have fun and grow something great. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. 